Hey, welcome to season three of the podcast. I'm excited to be back to kick things off in this third season. Uh, you're you're going to hear in the intro music that season three is going to be focused more on uh, Christianity, faith-based stuff, discipleship. If that's not your cup of tea, I understand, but I would, I, I would encourage you to stick around. Uh, I think everybody, regardless of your views and your faith, could have something to learn from some of the subject matter I'm going to be talking about. Uh, that said, I'm kicking things off for this season with a sermon that I preached at my local church, my home church, uh, back in July. Uh, I put it together and um, I talked about the Israelites that were wandering in the desert for 40 years with Moses and the lessons that they learned. And, and there's a ton of lessons because there's 40 years worth of stuff that they learned. I'm, I'm not even 40 years old and I know I've learned a ton of lessons in life. So 40 years in the desert will lead you to, to, to gain all sorts of wisdom and insight. But I picked kind of a top five of the, the lessons that the Israelites learned. And uh, you're going to hear that in the next half hour or so of the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, if you do, please share this and uh, give us a, a rating and review. This podcast is now available you know, because of uh, broadcasting it through the Anchor, the Anchor app. I'm now uh, broadcasting on uh, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher. Gosh, I don't even remember what they're all called. Pocket Cast, Breaker. There's all kinds of places that it's going now. Um, If you visit us on uh, anchor.fm, you will see all of the places that I'm distributing this to. But uh, share it, like it, review it, please. But first and foremost, listen to it and, and, and give me your feedback. Let me know if you got anything from it. I do from time to time hear from people. Uh, interestingly enough, as a side note, after I preached this sermon and I went out in the lobby, you know, people are encouraging. People are like, uh, hey, you know, you did a good job. And I appreciate when people tell me that. But really, you know, they're just being polite. But every now and then, there's a couple people that'll come up and say, your message impacted me. And that's the people I want to hear from. This last time, after I preached this sermon, I went and I saw somebody in the lobby. He wanted to say hi to me. So I went over. I was like, hey, how's it going, man? He's probably a little younger than me. He said, hey, I remember when you preached last year about this time. And I said, oh, yeah, I talked about spiritual grit or something like that. He said, yeah, I just wanted to let you know I found a way to download that audio and share it with other people. And I work with disabled veterans at the VA, and I've been sharing your message about spiritual grit with disabled veterans. And I was blown away. Like I said, I appreciate when people give me a comment like you did a good job, but that's not what it really comes down to why I'm doing any of this. I want people to be impacted. And for someone to come up to me and say, I downloaded that message you preached and it was so impactful on me that I shared it with disabled veterans because I thought it would help them. That's why God put me there that day. That's why God wanted me to speak that particular message. I felt a little weird about it when God put that on my heart that I was going to talk about spiritual grit. I said, I feel like I'm just taking some of these self-improvement books that I read and turning them into a sermon. And you can't just Jesusify everything, if that's a word. I've made it one. And just, you know, spiritualize every kind of uh, self-improvement thing. But I just, I feel like that's what God wants me to speak on because it's where I'm at in life. 
and you know, weathering storms and trying to get through tough times and having the grit to make it through there spiritually, not just physically and mentally. And um, that's a side note. That doesn't necessarily have to do with this sermon, but there are times when people that are impacted by something that I didn't even know about would tell me later on. I'd say, hey man, that impacted me. And so all that to say, all that four and a half minutes of talking to say, please let me know if this impacts your life. Please. I, I don't say that hollowly. I want to hear from you if you have been touched by something in this podcast. So please let me know. I am accessible on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Matthew J. Cochran. You can also find me uh, through uh, the Anchor FM, anchor.fm um, hosting for the website. And, and you can just email me if you want. You can email me at mjc at matthewjcochran.com. I would love to hear from you. And, and before I just keep going on and on and on and delay this even more, here's the sermon that I preached at Cypress Point Community Church on July 29th, 2018 on Lessons in the Wilderness. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you for the warm welcome. I appreciate it. So over the last few weeks, we've been covering some Old Testament stories. We've been covering some of the history of God's promises to the Israelites. Today we have 40 years of lessons to cover, so I'm going to start us out in prayer if you'll bow your heads with me. Father God, we thank you so much for an opportunity to hear from you and from your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. May we have open hearts to hear and open minds to receive. I pray that this would be a blessing to all. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we, we've learned a lot about God's people, the Israelites, the promise that he gave to Abraham, that he would, he would make of him a great nation. And then we learned about Joseph, who ended up in Egypt because his brother sold him into slavery. And then because he was in Egypt, he was able to save those same brothers from a great famine. God put him in that place at that time. But as the uh, Israelites stayed in Egypt for 430 years, their numbers just multiplied and grew and grew and grew. And the Pharaoh got really nervous about that. He thought they were gonna maybe overtake him. And so he put them under bondage and slavery. But even as slaves, their numbers kept growing and growing and growing, and they remained a threat. Ultimately, this all came to a head in a showdown between Pharaoh and God through his servant Moses. And we heard the story of Moses over the last few weeks. Moses led God's people out of Egypt into the wilderness, and they wandered there for 40 years before they finally inherited the land that God had promised. In those 40 years, they learned many lessons. They learned a great deal about God as he revealed himself as he never had before to anyone. And as they encountered God, they learned a lot about his character, his expectations, his holiness, and they even learned about themselves. So maybe you're like me. I used to look at the Old Testament and read that as just a bunch of stories. They were just some people that lived a long time ago and some things happened to them. And they were important for me to learn a lesson about maybe but they didn't really all tie in together. But then God opened my eyes at some point to realize that this is all connected. It's all part of his grand story. Every little bit of this is significant. And the lessons that he wanted the Israelites to learn are still the lessons that he wants us to learn. 
and what he wanted them to learn that he had to teach them over and over again because of their thick skulls, I think we can admit he also has to repeat to us over and over again because we're just as stubborn whether we want to believe it or not. So walk with me as we discover these key lessons the Israelites learned during their wanderings. The first one is God provides just the right things at just the right time. This happened over and over again for the Israelites. The ways of God don't always make sense. Sometimes his methods seem strange to us, but he comes through. Sometimes the timing seems wrong, but it's never wrong. It's always precisely on time. He gives us the right things whether they make sense or not at just the right time. There's some crazy things in this story, like water coming from a rock, a sea parting, a snake on a pole that heals people. All of those things seem like they don't make any sense, but they were God's methods that he used to provide for his people. And I'll bet you can think of some things in your life that didn't really make sense at the time, but when you look back, you say, oh, that was God providing for me. And since you asked, I'll tell you a story of my own. Now, as Pastor Dean mentioned, I was in the Marines. I was in for five years. The very last place that I was stationed was in Japan. So I came back to the United States, pretty much homeless and jobless. Stayed with my dad for a little while while I tried to uh, get some, um, some work. Six months went by before I finally actually had a job. Six months of unemployment. But during that time, Miraculously, I kept ending up with the money to pay the bills. There was a glitch in my pay where I was actually getting paid combat pay, which if you know anything about deployment, it's tax-free and it's a higher amount of pay than the other pay. I shouldn't have been getting it, but I did the right thing and I was honest and I brought it to the attention of the superiors. I said, this is not right. I shouldn't be getting this, but still I kept getting it. Even after I got out, for a couple months, I kept getting paid. They never fixed the mistake. I'm still waiting for them at some point to realize their mistake, and the IRS is going to come after me for those few thousand dollars. But God was providing for me in a way that didn't make sense at the time. I'm like, no, on paper, I was not deployed during this time. I shouldn't be getting this money. But it kept coming, and they never fixed it. Then, when that was running out, my grandmother, who was suffering from severe dementia, decided that she would rather give the inheritance to her grandchildren while she was still able to see it happen and, and, and see us happy than later on. So I ended up with a sum of money that dried up the very last dollar the week I found a job. Now, I don't know how all that happened. I don't know how God orchestrated that, but I know it was God because I never at any point was in need. I felt desperate. I felt like the job was never going to come. I felt like God wasn't answering my prayer for a job, but every bit of the way, he was taking care of me. And he did that for the Israelites, and he does that for you. We don't know how things are going to turn out, but God does. He sees the big picture. And his timing is never off. Now, the second thing that the Israelites learned was that God reveals himself and he wants to be known. This was kind of a big deal because religions up to this point had kind of a cold understanding of, of, of a higher being. Some of them even worshipped an actual physical piece of wood or metal. They didn't have a personal relationship. 
But God is establishing his chosen people, the Israelites. And so it's vital because he's revealing who he is to an entire people. We've seen him do it to Abraham. We've seen him do it to, to Noah. We've even seen him do it to Moses up at this point. But now an entire nation of people are having God reveal himself to them because he wants them to know him. Now this is where the Jews are really being set apart from other religions because there's nowhere else that there's a personal relationship with God. Even today, Christianity stands apart in our relationship with our God. That's huge. This isn't a religion. It's a relationship. The third thing that they learned is that God is faithful even when we're not. How many of you know that? Let me ask this. Okay, husbands, how many of you, like me, married way out of your league? That right there. Look at, look at her right now and just go, God takes care of me and gives me more than I deserve even when I even when I can't earn it. So the Lord established the covenant with his people, not a contract. And the difference is, in a contract, both parties have to meet up, uh, have to live up to their uh, end of the agreement. But in this covenant, even when the people failed him over and over again, God remained faithful and kept his promises all the time. This lesson repeats itself over and over and over but when you get frustrated with the Israelites for their stupidity at not getting it, just ask yourself what you've done lately to doubt God or what you've done lately to fail God and then look at how he's taking care of you anyway. Even when you're at your worst, God's a loving father who cares for you. And in all of Israel's grumblings, which God can hear, even when they're not spoken, God still kept loving them as a father and he does the same for you. He wants you to put all of your trust in him. Even when you fail, he can be trusted. The fourth thing we're going to see as we look through all of these passages is that sometimes God has to prepare us to receive his blessings. We pray and we just want things to, to come down to us, but sometimes we have to go through a period of wandering in the wilderness before God can bless us. The Israelites who left Egypt weren't ready to inhabit the land that God had for them. They weren't really God's chosen nation yet. He had to establish them as his holy nation, a kingdom of priests. They had to be prepared. And when we read all of the rules and the restrictions that God gives during this time, some of them seem tedious and some of them seem like they don't apply to us, but we need to read this with the understanding that every little bit of this is God preparing those people to enter into the land that he had promised. And everything hinges on them being ready. We may go through uh, tough times in our lives, and, and preparation doesn't always seem like it's preparation at the time when we go through a hard time. We may go through loss or something in our lives where we don't realize it's God preparing us for a great blessing, but we need to be ready when that blessing comes. We need to have the heart towards him that's necessary, and we need to be uh, of the character that he wants us to be. We've all heard the slogan for the United States Marine Corps, the few, the proud, the Marines. And I wish I could say that that was something that was really close to my heart, but really the slogan that's most close to me as a former Marine is written all over the recruiting billboards. It says, the change is forever. Because for me, that's been very true. There's also a saying, once a Marine, always a Marine, that goes right along with the change is forever. 
I didn't get to be one of the few or one of the proud until I underwent an intense 13-week boot camp, training, preparation. Call it the wilderness if you want. You don't get to call yourself a Marine at boot camp until you have completed something called the crucible. It's the very last test of endurance and grit. At the very end, when you finally have completed that, after a 25-mile hike with your pack on, and you get back, they hand you an eagle globe and anchor, a symbol of the Marine Corps. And when that's placed in your hand, then you are a Marine. Only after the Israelites had gone through preparation to make them worthy to be God's holy nation were they finally given that title. The fifth lesson that we'll see as we go through this is that only God can save. What if I told you that the entire Bible from Genesis through Revelation is about Jesus? It all starts with him and it all ends with him. Every genealogy that we read, and -and so-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, is to show the lineage of Jesus Christ and where he came from. Every story told in some way points to him. Some things that we read foreshadow him coming. Some things are literal prophecy of him. So over and over again, God shows the Israelites that they can't be saved by their works or by false idols. And they can't even be saved by Moses. God proves himself and even creates scenarios for him to prove himself. And when the Israelites want to turn back to their former lives, thinking that back there is the way of salvation that'll make things easier for them, God shows that it's only by trusting him that they'll be saved. So easily we want to turn back, but there's nothing back there that'll save us. The only way we can look that'll save us is up. So now up to this point, we've learned about how God provided a way out of Egypt for his people. We heard about Pharaoh. We heard about Charlton Heston. I mean, Moses saying, let my people go. And then finally, finally, they're out of Egypt, but now they're just in the desert. They're just out in the wilderness wandering. It's worth noting that God immediately makes known that they're not going to be taking any shortcuts. Scholars say that the the trip from where they came from to where they were going should have taken a couple weeks, and it took them 40 years. That's that's the long way, for sure. But God told them up front he wasn't going to take them the easy way. In Exodus 13, verse 17, he says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. He didn't want them to turn back around when they saw that there was difficulty in their way. He wanted them to see that he was going to provide the way for them. So he led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So when you think about this obstacle, when we hear this story and we think about the Israelites coming up on the Red Sea like they didn't know it was there, and now all of a sudden there's this giant obstacle, 
we need to remember that God intentionally took them to that obstacle. He knew the Red Sea was going to be in front of them, and he knew there was no way through it. They didn't know that, but he was about to show them. The, the entire reason that they ended up in front of that obstacle was because God placed it in front of them, and he does that for us too. He took them right to the edge of the giant obstacle so that he could display his power and show them that he was trustworthy to get them where they were going. And then he led them visibly. Before they even crossed the sea, he led them visibly with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. You know, I talked about sometimes God's ways don't make sense. This is a little interesting that he's visibly leading them like they're following a cloud, and then at night they're following fire. We don't really have uh, anything to compare that to in our day and age. We don't, we don't have God visibly showing up in that way and leading us like, hey, here's a cloud, follow it, and I'll show you where to go. Now we have his word to illuminate our path. But he does the same for us as he did for them. And we read in multiple places throughout the Bible that God says he'll never leave or forsake his people. But in this case, he was literally present at all times. The pillar didn't leave them. He was always there showing them that he wasn't going to leave them. And then at just the right time, with the sea before them and the enemy behind them, at just the right time, God made a path through the sea. So if you think you have obstacles in your life that are pretty big and God can't handle it, just remember that an actual sea came apart. Visualize that. And people walked through it. I don't know what you have going on in your lives, but it probably isn't a bigger obstacle than that. So don't ever think that just because an obstacle's in front of you, or that an enemy's coming up behind you, that you've reached the end. Where there's God, there's a way. And after this miraculous crossing, the Israelites somehow still didn't get it, and then they complained about their circumstances. They ended up walking through the sea on dry land with a pillar of cloud leading them after all of the plagues in Egypt, and somehow they still didn't get it through their heads. In Exodus 16:3, they said, What that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt... When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Here they are just having gone through this amazing miracle, and they're like, at least we had meat in Egypt. How can it be that these people who had just seen such a miraculous thing take place before their eyes could so easily forget? They'd just been allowed to cross the sea. They'd just been led by fire and still were being led by fire. And then they're talking about going back to Egypt where they were slaves because at least there they had meat. So I'm going to tell you a couple stories just so you know this isn't just the Israelites that are being knuckleheads. So just very recently... On Friday, my wife had LASIK surgery. So, lasers 
corrected her vision to where she can see better than 2020 now. Miracle, right? I mean, what an amazing accomplishment. And afterwards, when she was looking around without contacts or glasses and seeing things like it was for the first time, she was just so overcome with gratitude. She was so in awe. Oh my gosh, I can see without glasses. I can see without contacts. I mean, you would have thought that this was the first time she had opened her eyes. It was just so amazing. And that happens sometimes for us where we are so in awe of something God did. But now I've had LASIK surgery. I had it done in 2002. And I'm at a point now, 15 years later, where I don't wake up every day thinking, whoa, I can see. Oh my gosh, I don't have contacts in. Because you know what? I've forgotten. I've forgotten that moment in my life that she just experienced. And that's why it's important to remember the things that God's done. It's not just the Israelites that forgot. We forget things all the time that God has done in our lives to bring awe back and let us really see what he's done for us. And now to lighten it up, a little bit of a funny story. There's a comedian that I like that one of his best bits I've ever seen was when he was on Conan O'Brien's show a few years ago. And he was talking about the entitlement culture and things like that. And he was saying how he got on an airplane, and this is a few years ago, so Wi-Fi on airplanes was new. It was like brand new. They hadn't even heard of it yet. He got on the plane. Someone came on the intercom and said, just so you know, we're going to have Wi-Fi on this flight. Feel free to use it. Hook up your laptop, whatever you want to do. And everybody's like, oh, that's cool. A few minutes into the flight, they get back on and say, there's something wrong with the Wi-Fi. It's not going to be working. We're very sorry for the, uh, for the inconvenience. He said the people around him were grumbling and complaining. This is so stupid. And he said, how quickly we become entitled to something that we only knew existed 10 seconds ago. We didn't even know Wi-Fi on an airplane was possible. But then when they gave it to us and took it away, now we want it back like it's ours. How quickly we forget what things were like before. He talked about how people were complaining when they have a 20-minute delay. Oh, my, my, flight, my flight's late. I'm going to be 20 minutes late. He's like, are you going to go get on a big tube and sit in a chair and fly through the sky? The miracle of human flight is about to take place, and you're grumbling about how you are going to be 20 minutes late. Do, do you appreciate anything? I thought of that because it reminded me of the Israelites, how quickly they become entitled to things, how quickly they want to turn back, how quickly they forget the miracle that's right in front of them. But after all this, God, through Moses, let them know that he was not only going to provide for their needs, he's going to provide them with what they needed to help them be healthy. And, and many of the laws that come down during this time were for their own protection and prosperity not because God wanted to ruin their fun. When you read through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you're going to see a lot of rules and laws and regulations. This is, again, God preparing his people to be a holy nation. It's not him trying to suck the fun out of life. They needed to be healthy and holy. He gives them a command only to eat certain kinds of meat and to not eat the other kinds. And that's because through those other kinds of meat, disease could be spread. And he didn't want his people wiped out by disease. 
So he wasn't trying to say, don't eat anything fun. He was trying to say, I've set apart the things that are healthier for you, and I'm telling you what to eat and to be healthy. He tells them in Exodus 15, I, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So despite their complaining attitudes, God provided not just the sustenance, but something tasty. I don't know what manna tastes like. In fact, the word manna means, what is this? But when he sent quail, that was probably a little above and beyond. He could have just sustained them with the manna, but he wanted them to know that he not only wanted them to have what they absolutely needed, but he wanted to provide for them something of enjoyment, and so he gave them some quail to go with it. But oh, Israel, having food fall from the sky just when they needed it just wasn't enough. They didn't like the taste of their water. They had sophisticated palates after that time spent in Egypt. So God ha could have told them, as I tell my kids, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. This is the water you have. Drink it and be happy. But he, like any loving father, saw an opportunity to provide for his children. And obviously, the best way to give water to thirsty people is to make it spring out of a rock by hitting it with a staff. And so that's what God had Moses do. You read that in Exodus 17, 5 through 6. He told Moses to go ahead and hit the rock. Water came out, and they had water that was more to their taste. So do you think it's strange that God provided water through a rock? I mean, we know certain things like cactus have water in them, but a rock, that's a little odd. So remember earlier when I said that all of this is about Jesus? Jesus, who's the rock, the rock of ages, he said that whoever believes in him would have living water in John 7, 38. So maybe here we're seeing a foreshadowing of Jesus, the rock, giving living water. So the Israelites get going from that camp led by a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night, and they end up at Mount Sinai. Now this is where they receive the Ten Commandments. God's starting to establish some expectations of his people. But he doesn't just give them a bunch of thou shalts and thou shalt nots without giving them a little bit of an explanation. He's not a because I said so type of God. He reveals himself through his law. Through the commandments and the subsequent law that comes after, God's developing the Israelites into a holy nation. You see in Exodus 19, 4 through 6, he's telling them that if they'll follow those laws, they will become a holy nation. But look again at this personal language that he uses as he starts giving the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, revealing himself again to them in a personal way. So God established that he's trustworthy and that if they'll just keep his commandments, then they'll prosper. And then in chapter 24, the Israelites accept this covenant and they swear that an oath that they'll keep their end. But almost immediately, they turn to idols. The second they think that God isn't with them, they turn to worshiping a God that they can see, and they even give that false God credit for leading them out of Egypt. Now I know you're shaking your head, because I know that we don't typically have visible idols that we bow down to at an altar. But 
How many times have you prayed that God would take care of something, and then when he comes through, you give credit to someone else or something else or even take it for yourself? We're a people, we'll pray for rain, and then when water falls from the sky, we'll be like, look, I made it rain. No, God made it rain. And as you can imagine, this behavior made Moses very angry. He's up on a mountaintop, downloading the Ten Commandments from the cloud onto his tablet. And here he comes down to the bottom of the mountain, and the people are breaking the oath that they had just made to the Lord. It made God mad too, but Moses stepped in on behalf of the people. Parents, how many of you love your children? Should be all of you. Now, how many of you are driven crazy by the behavior of your children at times? Moses loved the Israelites, but if they didn't just get on his last nerve sometimes. But he was still there for them, and he still interceded on their behalf with God. Despite all of this, God continues revealing himself, continues showing them that he's faithful even when they're not. And he shows them grace, and he shows them mercy, and then shortly after this, he reveals himself to Moses in all his glory. The interesting thing here is that a lot of times we think about the Old Testament God as a God of wrath. We use statements like, I'm going to go Old Testament on you. And then we think of the New Testament as God is love. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he never changes. And he has always been just and loving, merciful and gracious, always. When he reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and he pronounced, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is revealing himself to Moses as merciful and gracious, not as wrathful. In fact, when Moses stepped in on behalf of the people, God said, okay, I'll show them mercy. He could have just brought down wrath, but he didn't. So the story goes on with a lot of detail about the tabernacle and how that's supposed to look and how priests are supposed to dress, and we're going to skip that. You're welcome. But I do encourage you to go back and read it. It is important. And I want to point out another reference to Jesus that's here in Leviticus. Because as he's talking about atonement and he's talking about sacrifice, he mentions that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. That comes from Leviticus, but could just as easily have been written into the New Testament. In fact, in Romans 3.25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Only through the shedding of blood is there forgiveness of sin. We can't save ourselves. Only the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross can save us from our sin. So the tabernacle is built. They're given a lot of guidelines on how to worship. And the Israelites get closer to the land that God promised. So Moses sends out some scouts. And a lot of them are afraid of the enemy that they see. There's giants in the land. But a couple of them come back and they give a good report because they have hope and trust in God. Now, God's not pleased with the lack of faith that he sees in so many of uh, the people. And this is where the 40-year sentence comes from. Up to this point, they've only been wandering for 
uh, two years. I know that if it was supposed to take two weeks and it had already been two years, that's already a long time. But, you know, contrast that to 40 years. I'm 38 years old. My life hasn't even seen 40 years yet. God's punishment for the lack of faith is that this entire generation is going to die off before the next generation gets to receive his promise. Now, I imagine that after all this time in the wilderness, people started getting on each other's nerves, all the drama and everything else that's going on, probably some foul smells. It's enough to make anyone frustrated, and, but these people complained a lot. And the people wanted water again. So entitled. They wanted water again. And so this time, God tells Moses to speak to the rock and water will come out. But Moses is angry and he strikes the rock with a staff again, not trusting God. And now he's not going into the promised land either. Surprisingly, the people complained and rebelled even more against God. And then as a result, they were bit by poisonous snakes. In a surprising method of healing, God sent uh, a snake to be put on a pole. And if the people looked at it, they'd be healed. That seems a little odd, but if you uh, think that sounds familiar, a snake on a pole, just think the American Medical Association's logo is a snake on a pole. So now it represents healing. Moses doesn't go down into the land he's been leading the people for 40 years, but God doesn't leave his people without a leader. Remember, he provides for them always at the right time. So he sends Joshua, one of the people that gave a hopeful report about the land that they were going into. And before Moses bids farewell, he gives a resounding speech. In it, he reminds the Israelites of God's goodness and of all that he's done for them. And that he's the one true God and only he can save. Proving once again that God is faithful. Even when we're not, Moses points out that they're not inheriting the promised land because they've been so good. Rather, he's giving them the land despite their stubbornness. Keep this in mind as you approach God, because if you feel unworthy when you pray to God, it's because you are. And if you feel like you failed him and don't deserve his love, it's because you don't. That's not bad news, though. You don't deserve his love, but he gives it anyway. You don't have to live up to his expectations. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's one of the most important phrases in the Bible— while we were still sinners. He didn't send Jesus for us after we got our act together. He sent Jesus for us while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, proving again he's faithful even when we're not. Nothing you can do, not keeping the Ten Commandments, not living by the Levitical law, none of it will make God love you more. He loves you because of his son who shed his blood as a once and for all atoning sacrifice to cover your sin. And likewise, nothing you can do like breaking all Ten Commandments or failing God every single day will make him love you any less. He loves you because of his son who shed his blood as a once and for all atoning sacrifice to cover your sin. A few minutes ago we sang Christ alone cornerstone. We sang about how he is the only way. And I'm going to leave you with a thought. Before I read from Romans 8, I want to remind you that if you don't already have that personal relationship with Jesus, that can happen anytime, right here, right now. Our prayer team is going to come up here at the end when I pray, and they'll be willing to talk to you about anything 
regarding your faith, the next step you need to take, Jesus, God's word. So from Romans 8, 3 through 4, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He sent us the law knowing we would fail to live up to it. And then he provided a way for it to be fulfilled through Jesus. And lastly, in Romans 8, 38 through 39, after all of that, after all God's done, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you remember nothing else that I said, take that with you. I'm going to pray us out. Thank you so much for your time and listening. Father God, thank you so much for revealing yourself to us, showing us that you're faithful even when we're not. I pray as we go out today that you would help us to follow you, but know that when we fail, you've provided a way for forgiveness and for salvation. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Amen.